Well, unfuckers, it's safe to say that you've made our little show a bit of a thing. Over the past couple of weeks since the New York Times featured UNFTR and we connected with even more amazing people coming to us from Best of the Left and David Pakman, we've seen a substantial increase in downloads, emails, Substack subscribers, you name it. Your messages are funny, thoughtful, encouraging, and sometimes pretty fucking deep. This is one of those things you always kind of dream about, but you're making it a reality. Connecting the ever-growing network of unfuckers and subfuckers is top of mind for us, and we have some ideas on how best to do this. But for the next couple of months, we're super focused on some important episodes and something special that we're pretty excited to announce. You're leaving Milton Friedman alone? Haha, <laughs> as if. Let's just say that we've been putting your donations to the show to good use, and we're close to launching something that we're pretty sure unfuckers are going to be all in on. Oh, group therapy? Knock it off. During show notes and listener shoutouts, we're going to address some insightful questions and emails that came in after the two-part series on corporations. We'll give some book love and pod love as usual, do some listener call-outs, and give a little teaser on our special product announcement coming in June. And in the coming weeks, we have some great episodes planned on the Chicago School, Cuba, Canada, immigration, and more. And we have our May Quickie coming up, which will hopefully be a lot of fun. Mm, you're a lot of things, but fun? All right, all right. So that brings us to this episode. We have a serious opus on tap today, so settle in for the long haul. Unfuckers can dig so far that our show has three true pillars. Politics, economics, and socioeconomics. Even when we discuss topics like hypermilitarization and mass incarceration, we typically examine them through one, two, or all three of these lenses. Therefore, it might seem a bit out of scope and focus for us to dedicate an entire episode to as fraught a character as Julian Assange. Well, while there's little overlap in terms of economics and socioeconomics when talking about Assange, there's certainly a political angle to be taken. But more than anything, we'll argue that Assange is the ultimate litmus test for America and its allies. The test is whether or not we're committed to maintaining even a shred of the democratic facade that we've barely held up in recent memory. Assange is a complicated figure, personally and historically, and he evokes pretty strong reactions on both sides. Mostly, though, we don't think about him at all. With the exception of occasional reports whenever there's an update on his charges or extradition attempts, Assange has been sort of backburnered. Considering the stakes at play for the U.S. media, this should be surprising and even troubling. Today we're going to review the story of WikiLeaks and put the debate over the fate of Assange in the only context it should be to answer the question of just how serious we are about our concept of democracy, free speech, and the role of the fourth estate. There's some pretty heavy shit in here, particularly in the beginning of the show. We'll break things up with our usual palate-cleansing silliness in the middle, but make no mistake on fuckers, this episode is as serious as a heart attack. You might not like Julian Assange or have zero fucks to give about WikiLeaks, but I promise you, you'll get why this topic deserves a good old-fashioned unfucking. This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says kiss my ass But instead of a revolution he started a podcast Just what the world needs Another basic white guy But it's fun because he curses Unfucking the The story of Assange cannot be told without the footage you're about to hear. If you've heard it before, then you know. If you haven't, then fair warning, it's a little hard to take. On April 5th, 2010, WikiLeaks gained international fame and shook up the media landscape by publishing dramatic, blood-curdling footage of U.S. Apache gunships mowing down civilians in Iraq. Light them all up. Come on, fire! A handful of civilian men were walking down a desolate street in Iraq with an Apache helicopter hovering overhead. Before the gunfire, a dispatch looked for clearance to shoot, saying it had confirmation one of the men had an RPG. Got a bunch of bodies laying there. All right, we got about uh, eight individuals. It wasn't an RPG. It was a camera. Among the murdered civilians were two Reuters reporters, which explains why the men would have been walking so casually 
and undeterred by the presence of a U.S. helicopter hovering above. As the men lay in pools of blood on the street, the U.S. gunmen carried on radio chatter and called in ground support. Oh yeah, look at those dead bastards. A few minutes later, a civilian van pulls up to the scene. Two Samaritans jump out of the van and attempt to assist the only surviving member of the group. Bongo truck picking up the bodies. Request permission to engage. Bushmaster 7, Roger. This is Bushmaster 7, Roger. Engage. 1 8, engage. Clear. Come on. Clear. Clear. Warning. Oh, yeah, look at that. Right through the windshield. <laughs> they too were gunned down in a hailstorm of bullets from the Apache. As the ground support arrived and began to take stock of the situation, it quickly became clear that the mass casualties were civilians. So the helicopter crew repeated the claim that there was an RPG. I just also want to make sure that you knew that we had a guy with an RPG crouching on the corner getting ready to fire on your location. That's why we uh, requested permission to engage. A member of the ground support then calls for assistance to help the wounded. There were children in the back of the van. It's their fault for bringing their kids to a battle. That's right. As we now know, WikiLeaks obtained this footage dubbed Collateral Murder and a massive trove of other documents from private Chelsea Manning, then named Bradley Manning. Over several months, she uploaded hundreds of thousands of documents from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, diplomatic cables, and two highly sensitive videos, Collateral Murder and another that purportedly shows the slaughter of Afghan citizens. The latter video has never surfaced. WikiLeaks followed up by publishing the so-called Iraq War Logs and Afghan War Diary, lifting the veil on America's bloody post-9-11 wars, exposing civilian casualties and extrajudicial killings. Also released were hundreds of thousands of State Department cables and secret documents, many marked confidential as opposed to secret or top secret, the highest level of classification. The documents also revealed evidence that U.S. forces killed 10 Iraqi civilians, including an infant, and called in an airstrike to destroy the evidence. According to a McClatchy report at the time, all of the dead had been handcuffed and shot in the head. This was a game changer. Some of the most decorated media outlets in the world not only collaborated with WikiLeaks, including the New York Times and The Guardian, but leveraged the cash to contextualize America's so-called war on terror, and continue to do so today. We like to think of ourselves as the land of the free, press freedoms and protected speech. First Amendment rights are crucial to our identity as a nation and as a people. We've traditionally been wary of an overzealous government seeking to take away such freedoms, but then balk at the strangest of times, as in the case of Assange. Now I get it. For Americans, Assange is sort of a tricky character, largely because of the narrative that surrounds him, regardless of how this narrative was crafted or by whom. Part of the rub about WikiLeaks is that it's indiscriminate. So depending on where you land on the political spectrum, it may have contributed to supporting your personal thesis on politics or assaulted it. Plus Assange isn't one of us. He's Australian, but looks more like a washed out villain from Die Hard. He's also an unusual man who might have social issues that place him somewhere on the spectrum according to those that know him personally. Which is to say he has difficulty relating to people in customary ways and misses certain social cues. Perhaps that's why we collectively engaged in schadenfreude at the sight of a disheveled Assange being dragged into custody. Well, you see, for the last seven years, Assange has been protected by living in the Ecuadorian embassy. But apparently, Ecuador has discovered that hackers make terrible houseguests. Why was that asylum lifted overnight? There have been reports for some time that Assange was sort of, uh, had outlived his welcome there in the embassy for all sorts of reasons, including that he was skateboarding in the so halls weird. and stealing Wi-Fi, and that his cat had been making a mess. So, you know, the Ecuadorians were getting sick of having him there. For years now, we've mused about this once towering shadowy figure being reduced to a skateboarding weirdo holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Time and selective amnesia tend to muddy events in our minds, and the further out of sight the man was, the more of a human interest story he became instead of a human rights story. We laughed at his long hair and scraggly beard, casually discarded him over rape allegations, which we'll address, that were never really resolved properly in court, but certainly decided in the court of public opinion. 
Much in the same way that Chelsea Manning's transition was treated as a sign of mental illness that surely contributed to her desire to screw over her country, Assange has been cast aside as an oddity who might have once been useful, but turned nuisance or perhaps even traitor. In many ways, the fight against Assange represents the actions of empire against the most important of our rights as Americans and globally as citizens. You don't have to like Julian Assange or even care about any of the information he exposed to understand the importance of a free press in any democracy. At its best, a free press exposes the most flagrant violations to our rights as citizens and unmasks those who would do us harm through the mechanisms of state and corporate power. Without a true fourth estate, we're left exposed to an increasingly militaristic state that left unchecked, will endeavor to clamp down on dissent in such a way that it chills the press, prevents the flow of information from whistleblowers, and turns all media into mouthpieces for the state. Now, as a practical matter, we're almost there. The Patriot Act, new provisions introduced under Obama's NDAA, expanded use of the FISA courts for domestic affairs, the NSA surveillance program exposed by Ed Snowden, cooperation with corporate entities from social media giants to cable companies have all contributed to the steady erosion of privacy and our rights. Only the most sophisticated of cyber geeks can mask their identities, and even this is a tenuous affair, given the tangled web of informants and agent provocateurs that exist in today's landscape. Well, the Chinese were only using a simple polyphonetically grouped 20 square digit key transposed in booster photonic form with multiple nulls. I don't care who you are. Your personal data? It's gone. Sold a thousand times over. Unless you live in the woods without a smartphone or tech of any kind, you're on someone's radar and exist in databases all over the world. Our steady acquiescence to losing privacy has lulled us into a false sense of security and turned our priorities upside down. We're so far removed from the concept of true liberty and free speech and our constitutional protections that we blurred the lines between our rights and the rights of the state. Think about it. We've willingly handed our data, our digital lives and information over to corporate entities that work collaboratively with this and other governments, and yet we defend the government's absolute right to secrecy, and we're willing to turn a blind eye to those who expose corporate and government secrets, no matter how nefarious they may be. Unfuckers, this attitude doesn't square. They've flipped the script, and we bought it. Now to really break this down, let's start by going through a list of some of the more prominent items that WikiLeaks brought to light. This will help us understand the nature of what is and what isn't in the interest of so-called national security and the role that WikiLeaks played over the past decade in creating accountability in the absence of journalistic courage. Then we'll unpack and largely debunk the arguments state and corporate powers make about Assange, examine the specifics of the charges brought against him, and discuss the nature of leaks and journalism. We're also going to talk about how Barack Obama and Donald Trump share one big thing in common. Hint, it ain't golf. Hey, man, we're going to break for our new sponsor? Wait, we have a sponsor? Holy shit. Yeah, by all means, let's hear from our sponsor. My God, this is exciting. <laughs> I'm just fucking with you. No one's going to sponsor your stupid ass. <laughs> oh, bro, that shit hurts. They're ready for the foreign affairs meeting in the Oval Office, Madam President. Who's they? Tony Blinken, Bob Menendez, Jen Psaki, and um, Joe. Joe's still here, man. All for the love of... I'll be down. Madam President. President? Step aside. Madam President, good to see you. Thank you, Secretary Blinken. Why don't y'all have a seat? Hey, I know her. Joe, what are you doing up? It's half past seven for crying out loud. Well, I saw old Tony Blinken here and he... And he huh. Blinken. Winkin', Blinken, and Nod. I remember that story. It reminds me of the one about old Corn Pop, the gangbanger. Damn it, Pisaki, get me some warm milk and put on the Cartoon Channel for me, would you? Yes, ma'am. I love cartoons, especially the old Bugs Bunny ones. Of course, when they colorized them, they lost a bit of luster. I remember this one time I was... <sighs> Tony, where are we on Afghanistan? Handed the keys over to the Taliban yesterday. Okay, Jen, if the press asks you about this... I'll circle back on it. Great. What about Iran? Paid lip service to our allies, then continued President Trump's plan as is. Is that the one that Bibi wrote? You bet. Okay. Jen, if the press asks, I'll circle back on it. Moving right along. What's happening with Project Steal the Lithium under the guise of spreading democracy? 
Happy to report that Operation Fuck Bolivia is full steam ahead, ma'am. I once knew a girl named Olivia. It was in the fourth grade, and I remember this. Not she- now, Joe. Not now, sweetie. Come on, man. Let's wrap this up so I can get Joe to bed. Have we escalated things in Russia? Still some details to iron out with Vladimir, but I can get Hillary on the line if you'd like. Not necessary. Putin knows what to do. Just keep feeding some bullshit to MSNBC and it'll take care of itself. Am I forgetting anything? Yes, Cuba. Bob, I'm so sorry, sugar. Of course. How's our Cuba policy coming along? Yes, great. I told everyone that we would reassess the situation as soon as they clear up their human rights violations. And as long as I pronounce it Cuba, nobody questions me. Good. Tony, keep your damn hands off Guantanamo. Keep the guns flowing to the Saudis. Let's see if we can find ourselves a new fight. Somewhere exotic. Mama's going to need a distraction soon. Now, if there's nothing else, I'm going to get Joe off to bed. Oh, and Jen, if anyone asks about the border, I'll circle back. That's my girl. Let's start with the present day and talk quickly about where Julian Assange is right now, because the situation remains both extraordinarily complex and extremely simple at the same time. The complexity of his situation is revealed through both what Assange accomplished in a relatively short period of time at the helm of WikiLeaks and the incredible lengths that several governments, but mostly ours, have gone through to silence him. As of this moment, he's still being detained in the UK, though a judge refused to extradite him to the US, which still holds charges against him from the Trump administration. The obvious questions are, why not just let him go if a UK judge refused extradition, and why doesn't Biden simply reverse course on Pompeo's charges? Here's the simple and frustrating answer to both. They could, but they just won't. See, the UK could release him instead of holding him prisoner under what the UN has called extreme and dangerous conditions. He could go free today and seek refuge in one of the many countries that has offered him sanctuary, as Obrador in Mexico recently did. Likewise, the Biden administration has the complete power and authority to dismiss the charges against him. The rape charges against him in Sweden, a complicating and murky factor that we'll cover in a moment, have been dropped. The UK has no reasonable basis to continue holding him, particularly because they're under no obligation to extradite someone on political charges. The US, as we'll also cover, risks trampling on the Constitution itself if it doesn't drop the charges against him. Very simple answers to an extremely complicated situation. I can only assume at this point that it's a matter of pride because the regimes after Assange have all painted themselves into a corner where the obvious answer is to drop it and let him go, which would mean admitting that we fucked up. Ah, fucked up. Assange the man has been politicized because of the effect his work has had at varying points. Right? Like, to some, he's an irresponsible liberal who undermined the Bush administration at a time of war. To others, he's a Trump ally and Russian operative who swung the U.S. election in favor of Republicans. The Obama administration pulled the threads all around him, indicting the whistleblowers he worked with, but stopped short of coming after him personally. Though, as we'll see, perhaps the biggest villain in this story, despite the ludicrous level of charges brought against Assange by Pompeo and Trump, is the Obama administration. Let's go back. Beyond collateral murder, which is damning and horrifying enough to justify the existence of WikiLeaks, it's important to review just how substantial the impact of WikiLeaks has been. Arguably, the biggest stories of the past decade have WikiLeaks fingerprints on it, and for a while, most major news outlets in the world were all too happy to ride the gravy train. Found within the files, the real civilian casualties. The prison torture cover-up. The extent of deadly checkpoint encounters. The WikiLeaks website released nearly 400,000 secret U.S. files on the Iraq war late today. It was the largest leak of classified U.S. files in history. The documents count at least 15,000 civilian deaths that were never reported before. They also indicate U.S. officials failed to pursue accounts of Iraqi authorities brutalizing prisoners. WikiLeaks.org, a whistleblower website, has published what it says are nearly 92,000 official U.S. documents of raw data on the deaths and casualties collected. Hundreds of thousands of documents were released in the Afghan war diary and tens of thousands more were uploaded to WikiLeaks and disseminated to the press in the Iraq war logs. Through the war logs dump, which includes Syria and Yemen, it was revealed that the United States was essentially adrift on all fronts. 
Dispatches of confused double dealings and failed diplomatic efforts were mixed among thousands of documents showing the complete absence of a coordinated plan, let alone an exit strategy, in any region. The New York Times, The Guardian, Der Spiegel, Le Monde, El País, The Intercept, dozens of alternative outlets, all worked with WikiLeaks and dedicated resources to sifting through the treasure trove of documents. Major outlets had a field day with the releases, particularly on the left, because it exposed the failures of the Bush Doctrine. But it didn't end there. Through WikiLeaks, we discovered the secret dealings of the Obama administration's plan to secure the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a clandestine effort to create a global trade agreement that would paint China into a corner and allow the U.S. to more easily access and exploit cheap labor in developing countries, among other things. Some of the cables are credited with inspiring the Arab Spring. The DNC database leak exposed the coordinated attempt to smear the Sanders campaign and turn the tide of the Democratic primaries. And, of course, the Podesta emails exposed the Clinton Foundation ties to Saudi Arabia, Hillary Clinton's speaking engagement fees to Goldman Sachs, and assurances to bankers that they would be at the table in drawing financial policy in her administration. Or the fact that she had access to questions ahead of primary debates. These are just a few of the major highlights, and like I said, depending on which side of the aisle you're seated, you might have a serious axe to grind with some of this information being made public. But that's hardly the point. Just when Hillary Clinton was hoping to put the whole notion of an email controversy behind her, here comes an entirely different email controversy and one that threatens the unity the Democrats are hoping to show in Philadelphia. We'll get to the essential point of the thesis when we talk about the charges that have been levied against Assange and why prosecuting him on this basis is a disaster on so many levels. But first, I think it's important to run through the myths that surround Assange and the arguments against him that fail to hold water. Quickly, there's the careless allegation that he's a traitor. Nothing speaks more to our ethnocentric American exceptionalism view of the fucking world than this charge. First off, he's not American. He's Australian. And he's fairly agnostic in terms of his subject matter. Few major players on the world stage have escaped embarrassment from his leaks, though in typical American fashion, we just assume it's all about us. Even still, the term itself, traitor, applies specifically to a citizen who provides aid and comfort to the enemy during a time of war. And technically, even though we're fighting all over the globe, by definition, we're not at war with anyone as far as the law states. That's another point of contention and illegality that we've covered before, but there are no formal declarations of war authorized by Congress currently. And Joe Biden knows that because he's the one that vehemently fought for the War Powers Act. Either way, it doesn't apply. Then there's the argument that no one has a right to classified information. It's classified for a reason. This is a great debate and one I wish the country would have out loud. The overclassification of documents is out of control. It's also illegal. But that rarely matters to those in power. They make the laws so they get to fucking break them. That's classified. It's what? It's classified. And most of the reporting that came from the war logs, as an example, were diplomatic cables and not covered by classified status. More to the point, it strikes at the heart of what the public deserves to know. The Pentagon Papers is the classic example of whistleblowing and leaking classified information. Yes, Daniel Ellsberg was brought up on charges of espionage, but the charges were dropped mostly because the government knew then that it was walking a tightrope called the First Amendment. If you think about what it is to be the fourth estate, to be part of a free press, it means that you are exactly at odds with the power structure. Your job is to set information free. The caveat, which we'll talk about, is whether you have a process in place to determine whether the information you've obtained would pose imminent danger to anyone if revealed. The bottom line is that the very nature of journalism is to source these materials and make a call as to whether the public has a right to know. So let me ask you, did the public have a right to know that we murdered civilians in Iraq and then tried to cover it up? Did Reuters have a right to know that two of their reporters were gunned down in cold blood by U.S. forces? Did Americans have the right to know that our government had no plan to effectively litigate or extract ourselves from conflicts that sent our sons and daughters to die and cost taxpayers trillions of dollars? Hopefully these answers are self-evident. Then there are the personal attacks. It's a classic technique. When you can't stand on the facts, drag your opponent through the mud. Victim-blaming government style. Assange is untidy. He smells. He's vulgar. 
He's not following the rules we made up in newsrooms that routinely kowtow to power and literally hold stories back when requested by the powers that be. He's a liberal. He's a conservative. He's a narcissist. He's a... Ooh. Rapist? Okay, let's do this because it's tricky and deserves to be explored. Remember that Assange was originally being held in the UK because of pending rape charges against him in Sweden. Now, in many ways, this was the end for Assange because the allegations alone made him instantly unlikable and difficult to defend. To be clear, one has nothing to do with the other, but the court of public opinion doesn't allow for such nuance. And frankly, if he's a rapist, then he can go fuck himself and rot in prison for that. But we have to be strong enough to see clearly that it also has no bearing on the validity of WikiLeaks and the need to protect it and its founder from charges that would undermine democracy. Now, one of the most productive developments today is the movement towards believing the victim. A reversal of innocent until proven guilty, but in a way that actually benefits society. So many of us, particularly those in progressive circles, were caught in a trap of defending Assange for his work, but condemning him for his behavior. The challenge was in separating the two. But the harder question is whether they should have been separated at all. This is the tough talk we need to have, so let's walk carefully through the timeline. First off, Assange has never been formally charged with rape. In Sweden, the laws work a little differently than the US, and sexual misconduct allegations are actually taken more seriously. The allegation was that he had risky, unprotected, but consensual sex with two different partners who grew concerned that Assange might have infected them with a sexually transmitted infection. So, they went to the police. These allegations fell under Sweden's more stringent predatory sex laws, and so it was made public that he might have to stand for questioning. And so Assange waited in Sweden for more than a month to be questioned, but it never came. Neither accuser would ever submit to formally charge him with rape, as that was not their specific concern. So after waiting for questioning that never came, Assange ultimately left for the UK. It was only after this point, and not until a Swedish prosecutor named Marianne Nye picked up the charges on her own, that Assange sought asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in the UK. So the question is, why then, and why at all? It was clear that Nye was operating under pressure from the US government to find a way to hold Assange in the event that they wanted to begin the extradition process to the US because the Obama administration was still in the process of deciding whether or not it would pursue charges against him. This was an educated guess at the time that we now know to be true due to reporting from The Intercept. It also makes sense since Nye would ultimately drop the charges completely in 2017 on the exact day she was due to appear in Swedish court to defend her rationale for charging him. Assange's team has always maintained that they were happy to cooperate with any investigation into the rape allegations as evidenced by his voluntary outreach to Swedish authorities for more than a month after the case was first opened up and made public. The reason he refused to return to Sweden when the charges were made by the new prosecutor was because Sweden then refused to promise it wouldn't extradite him to the US. So he was caught in the middle and ultimately sought his long refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy. Now, does any of this clear him of any potential sexual misconduct? No, but it does clarify his behavior and demonstrate that neither the threat against him nor his refusal to return to Sweden had anything to do with the allegations specifically. Now, the last thing I would like to debunk is the larger concept that if you have nothing to hide, then you have nothing to fear. And therefore, the government should be allowed to keep secrets without explaining itself. First off, this is anathema to the Constitution and any of our founding principles, but okay, let's have it out. I'm going to offer you one personal anecdote to demonstrate why this is a dangerous idea. What you consider just, normal, and legal today might be considered illegal and punishable tomorrow by someone you've never met. I have a friend who started a protest group during the Occupy Wall Street days. It was a fiery collection of anti-war progressives who were concerned with government overreach, the Patriot Act, and our foreign occupations. They planned a couple of protests and gatherings and kept in touch on open social channels. Then one day, to her horror, she received a phone call from a friend in government who, while sifting through a set of WikiLeaks documents, found her name. It was in a correspondence between U.S. intelligence agents talking casually about reclassifying her peaceful protest group as a terrorist organization so that if and when they swept her up, they could charge her in the secret FISA courts as a terrorist, thereby eradicating her right to due process under the revised Obama NDAA. Now that's fucking real. That's no fucking bueno either. And if you have a shred of patriotism or democracy in you, 
you'll recognize this as horrifying and wrong. So now let's be clear about the U.S. charges against Assange and what this portends for journalism. I need to give an open-hand fuck slap to both Obama and Trump here, but for different reasons. First off, the very specific charges against him levied by the Trump administration under the Espionage Act are that Assange tried to help Chelsea Manning create a password that would conceal her identity when downloading secret documents. And they're relying on only one specific phrase, quote, no luck so far, unquote. That's their only evidence. With this, they're charging Assange under subsection 793 of the espionage law, which Matt Taibbi calls a, quote, ticking time bomb for journalism because it seems to clearly permit the government to prosecute anyone who simply obtains or receives national defense information. This would place not only sources who steal and deliver such information at risk of prosecution, but also the journalists who receive and publish it, end quote. Daniel Ellsberg noted that he was personally charged with 12 counts for a possible sentence of 115 years. Assange was charged with 17 and 175 years, which Ellsberg considers a tragedy. Yesterday is a day that will live in the history of journalism, of law in this country, and of civil liberties uh, in this country because it was a direct attack on the First Amendment. Ellsberg says that at best, perhaps, he would have been in violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, but the fact remains that the government still has yet to put forward any evidence other than this one phrase. And in terms of encouraging the source to provide more information by saying, quote, curious eyes never run dry, another quote that they rely on, every press freedom organization on the fucking planet recognizes this as part of source cultivation, and every credible journalist has engaged in it. So you can begin to see why so many international press freedom organizations, the United Nations, constitutional scholars, etc., have lambasted the United States for this charge. The curious part of the whole thing is why our own press isn't jumping up and down and screaming from the mountaintops. We need to have a serious discussion about the state of journalism in this country because precious few outlets are mounting a full-throated defense for Assange. You have some of the finest journalists in the world and even some fucking terrible ones. I'm talking to you, fucker Carlson rightly calling for his release and to be cleared on all charges. But few institutions, if any, have stood up and made similar demands. After all, Assange isn't a journalist, he's a publisher. So why the fuck aren't news organizations all over joining forces with him, even if they view him with personal and professional disdain? His information was good enough to help you score awards and prizes, but not good enough to defend your very right to fucking exist? Moreover, the guy is not a whistleblower and a leaker, So he's not even the same as Chelsea Manning, who stood up to her charges when caught. He's the fucking publisher who collaborated with other publishers to release information to us. Maybe this is why Reporters Without Borders ranked the United States 44th on the Press Freedom Index. And for any member of the media still making the argument that the government has a right to demand you withhold certain information or that it has an unassailable right to classify documents, I think Chris Hedges has the best response. He said, you can argue that this information, like the war logs, should have remained hidden, but then you cannot call yourself a journalist. And now is where we have to take a massive shit on establishment Democrats and the corporate media by exposing their hero for what he was, a fucking fascist. And I don't use that term lightly. I actually understand what it means, and you know I do. I put most of this blame squarely on President Obama. What Obama did to the First Amendment would be impressive for even the most vicious authoritarian leaders in the world. It should have made him the nemesis of the press, not its darling. WikiLeaks was gaining momentum just as Obama's Department of Justice was becoming more and more hostile to the media and its sources. It was the administration of the ostensibly liberal Barack Obama that prosecuted more people under the Espionage Act than every other administration combined. He somehow outdid his predecessor, who oversaw a torture regime, a domestic surveillance network, extraordinary rendition, and a civilian slaughtering drone program. Now, for the record, the Espionage Act is no fucking joke. It was never intended to be used as a cudgel against the free press. It was originally passed in 1917 in response to the war effort, and in 1918, Congress passed amendments that collectively became known as the Sedition Act which was mostly used to target anti-war critics and socialists. Surprise, surprise. 
Perhaps the most famous case involved Socialist Party of America founder Eugene Debs, who ran for president four consecutive times. In 1918, Debs gave a speech outside an Ohio prison where three people convicted for opposing the draft were being held. Debs was arrested two weeks later and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. He had this to say during his trial, quote, I believe in free speech, in war as well as in peace. If the espionage law stands, then the Constitution of the United States is dead, end quote. Debs ran for president yet again, this time in prison, and won nearly a million votes. A century later, and the war against the Espionage Act is still being fought. You're probably familiar with some of the names. Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, reality winner, John Kiriakou, Thomas Drake, and Jeffrey Sterling, among others. You have to understand, a war on sources is a war on journalism. Without the ability to defend trusted sources, journalists lose their ability to expose wrongdoing, fraud, malfeasance, or in recent cases, widespread surveillance and war crimes. That's why the indictment of Julian Assange is so fucking important. While the ruthless Obama administration toyed with the idea of indicting him, it ultimately decided that it couldn't prosecute Assange, the publisher of the information, without going after media outlets that do the very same thing, such as the New York Times or the Washington Post. Yet the Trump DOJ, which celebrated the increase in leak investigations with the fucking press conference, indicted Assange under the Espionage Act in May of 2019. Not since the Pentagon Papers has the media been confronted with such a fucking existential crisis. By indicting Assange, a publisher, not a leaker himself, the government was effectively saying any media outlet that publishes classified information can be prosecuted. The only fucking reason that Assange is still in the UK sitting in limbo and not in the United States facing the Biden Justice Department is that the UK judge ruled him off limits for extradition due to being a suicide risk. People saw the UK's refusal to extradite him to the US last month as some sort of victory, but it's not really. The judge wouldn't comment on the validity of the extradition request, just that she thought Assange would literally kill himself if they sent him here. And she based this, by the way, on our treatment of Chelsea Manning, who was jailed briefly again in 2019 for refusing to testify to a grand jury regarding Assange. And in terms of his mental state and physical well-being in the UK prison system, UN Special Rapporteur on Torture Nils Melzer said, quote, Assange has been deliberately exposed for a period of several years to progressively severe forms of cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment, the cumulative effects of which can only be described as psychological torture. So while Trump actually pulled the trigger by indicting him, it was Obama who made it possible. He cleared the way. He declared war on the press, on journalists and whistleblowers, on all of us. Every program designed under Bush was amplified under Obama. From drone strikes to chilling speech domestically, no president has assaulted press freedoms and civilian protections more than Obama. Trump was a moron. He was a stupid, ruthless, ineffective asshole. Obama was just a stone-cold fucking assassin. And given Biden's proximity to this period as VP and his dedication to continuing the worst of our foreign policy and surveillance apparatus, I have little hope for this administration. One clear fact remains that blows up every government argument against Assange placing troops or citizens at risk. Not one report, not one single fucking report issued by any government, NGO, organization, anyone, has shown evidence that WikiLeaks releases have caused the death or persecution of a single individual globally. Can the same be said of our actions? Who's more deserving to stand trial? The publisher who released evidence of U.S. troops slaughtering two Reuters reporters and a group of civilians, including children? Or the murderers themselves, who then tried to cover it up? Free Julian Assange. Pardon John Kiriakou. I'll be back for you next week, Milton. Here endeth the lesson. Show notes! Wow, we have a ton of shit to get to in show notes, from follow-ups and comments to pod love and book love, but first off, let's start with the teaser that we promised. We've been putting your coffee donations to good use on fuckers. Your support by buying us coffee at unftrpod.com has allowed us to invest in a very special partnership with a native coffee roasting company. In the coming weeks, we're going to announce the launch of our own unfucking brand of coffee that will help support the show 
and provide economic resources to an indigenous community. We'll obviously be talking it up a lot in coming episodes, but details and early access will be given through Substack. We're so fucking pumped about this, and it's all because of your early love and support that we're able to bring this to life way earlier than we ever thought possible. So stay tuned. There's more to come. We're going to kick off our show notes with a message from Kayleen G., because she asked a great fucking question as a follow-up to the corporate series, and it's one that I'm sure we've all been confronted with. So here it is, from Kayleen. Hey, new unfucker here, and this was the episode that got me hooked. I shared this with a family member who leans pretty far right at this point, but I thought they could give it a chance. One argument I got in return in opposition to raising taxes on corporations was that A, they would move their businesses overseas, which you cover in the episode, and B, that corporations would absorb the extra cost of their taxes by passing it on to the consumer by means of inflation. I'm not an economic pro by any means, so I don't have a good enough understanding to rebuttal, but I thought maybe they have a point. Is anything in argument B based on any fact? Well, Kayleen, I am so glad you brought this up because it is a very consistent argument. So first, we have history on our side. In the 50s and 60s, when corporate taxes were 70%, it had zero impact on inflation. The mid-70s, corporate taxes retrenched a little bit and inflation grew, but there was no correlation between these events. See, inflation grew due to the oil shock, and then it entered a vicious cycle, with interest rates chasing inflation until Volcker finally got it under control at the end of Carter's term and into Reagan's first term. So it's important to remember what taxes are and where they come from. Taxes come from profits, not from top-line revenue. They're taken from a company after all is said and done. Cost of goods sold, payroll, marketing, distribution, whatever goes into doing the thing that you do, if you have $100 left over or a million dollars left over, the cost of doing the thing you do doesn't change depending on how much you're taxed. And because we're talking about a situation where we know that apart from the historic amount of cash that companies are sitting on in the US, they've also parked nearly 10 trillion offshore. They're just simply keeping that money for themselves to pump up their share prices. It's not going to research and development, to paying people more money, to charity. It's just fucking sitting there. When it comes back into the system that allows these corporations to do business on the internet, using the supply chain that relies on the ports that we've constructed, the roads, the bridges, the tunnels, to tackle social issues that improve the standard of living for all Americans, I would say that it's a much better use than parking it offshore in a bank account. Now, if you want to make the argument that regulations that carry heavy price tags contribute to inflation, then I'll have it out with your friends, because that's a real thing in which case you have to do a cost-benefit analysis. In other words, how much of that cost actually benefits us as a society? Regulations that cap toxic emissions from manufacturing plants that release carcinogens into the atmosphere and led to cancer clusters? Well, I would argue that a bit of inflation to protect the greater good isn't a bad thing. But taxes? Nope. Taxing profits does not lead to inflation, particularly when they're levied consistently so we're all playing by the same rules. Here's the bottom line. EBITDA. EBITDA is the bottom line. That's how companies are valued, and it stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. That's the $100 or a $1 million that we spoke about before. When a company is valued on the market for a merger or an acquisition, it's typically valued one of two ways, as a factor of revenue or of EBITDA. So when a company says, you're chipping into my profits by taking taxes out, the answer is, sure. But when a company goes to sell, the value of it is based on the amount of money it earns before taxes. So no matter how you slice it, there is no good argument for allowing corporations to hoard cash. Hope that helps, Kayleen. Appreciate the suggestion. Thanks for the email. And now, on to coffee. Linda C. did something pretty extraordinary. She bought 20 coffees for the team. Here's what she had to say. I had a great month, so I thought I'd share the wealth. I realize that as your fan base grows, and it's growing exponentially as it should, you soon won't be able to acknowledge everyone who gives, but I just wanted to let you know how delightful your shoutouts have been. Keep doing what you're doing, Max, and you and your fellow liberal podcasters are keeping hope alive. And FMF. There's so much to love about that comment. One thing is, I hope we can figure a way to keep working everybody into the episodes because it does encourage banter and dialogue, and I really do love to hear from everybody. So, uh, Linda, I don't know what to say other than, wow, thank you. Susan purchased five coffees for the team. Susan, God bless. Thank you so much. John Kane, fellow creator and total fucking badass host of Let's Talk Native, 
sent the team five coffees saying that we've set the standard for what a podcast should be. This was totally unnecessary. John knows how I feel about him and the work that he does, and this is just, brother, too much. On the Facebooks, CJL said, I enjoyed this episode a lot. Really makes you realize how much women need to contribute to push to get a seat at the table and have it be completely natural and not a big deal. Women are smart and have smart ideas. They also have different perspective that shouldn't be ignored. Keep pushing AOC. We're rooting for you. And I love this podcast so much. That's obviously in response to the AOC episode. We had a lot of fun putting that together. I'm glad you enjoyed it. On the Twitters, K-Dub said... Anyone looking for an interesting American political history podcast, try UNFTR Pod. It's eye-opening, informative, anger-inducing, and witty. Ooh, thanks. Not for the kids, if the pod name didn't already make that clear. And if you're not angered by some of the content, I don't think we can be friends. K-Dub, don't lock yourself out. You know, you got to meet people where they are. All right? They may not be angry, but uh, they'll, they'll come along. All right? You got you to you pull them along. Don't shut them out. On Substack, Suzanne J had a had a great comment. It's long, so I'm just going to read a portion of it. Why, why, why do Democrats have such difficulty devising a game plan, getting everyone on board, and pounding the message home? The Republicans are masters at this technique, and it exhausts me watching it in real time. I live in Wyoming, for fuck's sake, where citizens are more worried about their Second Amendment rights than having a livable wage or affordable health care. WTF. Man, I agree with you. Oh, by the way, she closes with, fuck Milton Friedman. Suzanne, I agree with you. You got to start paying attention to that shit. Also, I'd really like to come to Wyoming. So don't tell anybody when I get there, because if they're mad at me, I, I, I can't deal with it. Okay. Now, emails. Lara E. Or is it Lara E? I'll let you decide. Ready? She says, maybe the best podcast ever. And I listen to a lot of podcasts. Great combination of information, intellectualism, and humor. I was laughing out loud today. Thanks to Best of the Left for spreading the word. Now, Lara, Lara, Lara Lara is uh, a very consistent fan of the show and has been supporting us. And she actually even says, I totally appreciate you recognizing my support for the last few weeks. I look forward to the pod every week. You know the actress Mara Rooney? Lara rhymes with Mara. Or is it Mara Rooney? So uh, I didn't look it up beforehand. I'm just going to butcher this altogether. But it gives me a chance to say your name over and over. Bottom line, as you say, fuck Milton Friedman at the end of your email. Fuck Milton Friedman. Thank you for the support. I love hearing from you. Keep it up. Have to call out Derek R. for a great suggestion on an episode on transportation with a great amount of detail. Derek, it's officially on the list and we'll give you a more thorough, direct response and then incorporate your comments into our outline. Lara H., God, now I have a problem. Is it Lara H. or Lara H.? She said, hey there, love the show. I recommended it to both people I know who listen to podcasts. Now, Lara is actually launching a show of her own, so we'll keep a watch out for that. She's got a seriously cool backstory. She's even running for public office in a state somewhere out west. Best of luck on that, LH. We'll keep everybody apprised of your status. Got a bunch of great reviews in. I'm going to read a couple of highlights here because you know that the reviews and the ratings really help us in the rankings and uh, help us get found and spread the unfucking word to everybody. So here's the first one. Bleeding Heart Progressive said, quote, Max is my hero. I like this show for its attitude, but I love it for its focus on economics, foreign policy and real issues. By the way, kids should not be listening to this show. That's true. Then we've got Matt Arena who said incredible podcast. It's sweeping and it hits the nerve of the American public demanding for a better system. Matarina, I think, also reached out to us on email, uh, but his handle here is Matarina. Hey, Matarina. DFAT, entertaining and smart. Great pod. They cover a lot of ground in every episode and present it in a way that keeps you listening. I need to figure out a way to get some of my family members to give it a go. They really need to hear this stuff. Kay Denver, found my new favorite podcast. Love the pace, love the content, love the straight talk. Thank you. And Shelly Ann, Shelin, Shell Lynn, or She Lynn 02. Holy shit, I'm an unfucker now. I GD effing love this MFing podcast. Shelin, She Lynn. You know you can curse. You can even put it in the ratings. We don't even give a shit. Just fucking do it. It's educational, unfiltered truth, hard-hitting laughter, all with this French swirled. Is that what we're calling it now? All with this French swirled throughout. I'm caught up on all episodes. Wow, thank you. And I can't hardly fucking wait for the next. Well, I hope you liked it. Thanks, Jay and David Pakman. Bod love. I want everybody to listen to Intercepted with Jeremy Scahill and Murtaza Hussein. It's the most recent one called Joe Biden's War Powers. If you get a chance, it goes through the history of Biden's legislative accomplishments and how he has really morphed over time 
into somebody who was really a great defender of the congressional authorization to restrain executive overreach and then also knew how to dismantle it on the other end. It's a, it, They did an amazing job just sort of pulling that all apart. So go check that out, Intercepted. And Media Roots with Robbie and Abby Martin. I love Abby Martin a whole bunch. And on this one in particular, she's speaking with Kevin Gastola of Shadowproof. Uh, it's an episode back in September of 2020, so you've got to dig back in the feed a little bit. But they cover the Assange trial in detail. Uh, there is no better journalist working on all of the Assange stuff than Kevin Gastola. I can tell you that. That is fact. Uh, Jason Leopold, of course, is another one who does the most incredible work with FOIA information. Uh, and they've come together here on Media Roots with Robbie and Abby Martin. Go check that shit out. And lastly, under Podlove, check out the Newsbeat feed. There's a couple of really great selections in there. You can go all the way back to the beginning and check out Collateral Murder Cover-Up which details Chelsea Manning's trials and uh, the video release. And uh, they also have one on the Espionage Act. You'll be addicted to their whole feed, so you can find a whole bunch of uh, items there that really help tell the story. And they've interviewed directly a ton of the people that are involved in the process of helping to free some of these individuals, the people that are involved in the legal disputes. So great direct resources that they have on that show. Go check it out. You can go to usnewsbeat.com. To look at their entire feed on their website or obviously just search for Newsbeat on your podcast feed. Book love! So, in putting this together, there were two uh, book sources that I use primarily. Uh, one is called In Defense of Julian Assange. It's a compendium of articles and essays curated by Tariq Ali and Margaret Kunstler. Yes, that Kunstler. One of his daughters. Amazing. And the other one is No Place to Hide by the great Glenn Greenwald. No Place to Hide gives some context in real time for what was really going on during the Snowden leaks. Nobody tells it better than Glenn, so check that one out as well if you haven't uh, purchased that book. As always, Unfucking the Republic is produced by Manny Faces Media. Uh, it's actually pronounced Mani Faces Media. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by Immodest Max and distributed by the Dark Fantasies of Empire. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to unftrpod at gmail or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or at unftr.substack.com to keep the conversation going between releases. Remember that we will never charge for Substack. If you're interested in our book selections, you can go to bookshop.org slash shop slash unftrpod. And that's it for this week. We'll see you back with a great episode, I hope, on the nemesis of the show, Mr. Milton Bucking Friedman.